Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep, and welcome Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. So we're up to episode number 52, and the theme for this episode is sleep and trauma and what sleep's like in people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's something we see commonly in our clinical practice. Absolutely. And often too, it's not people who identify as I've come to see you because I've got prior trauma and a sleep problem, but it starts to, it comes out as part of the clinical assessment that it may be one of the factors precipitated and perpetuates their insomnia. Yeah. So how's your preparations going for World Sleep Day? Kind of good. (laughs) It's very, it's coming up very soon. We have decided to, as a, for the Sleep Health Foundation in Australia, we're going to be looking at life after the bushfires. People, everyone in the world would know that Australia experienced catastrophic bushfires. And in the wake of the recovery, I mean, they're still going in some places, but the recovery from that, uh, obviously there's a lot of outpouring of money and assistance. We at the Sleep Health Foundation want to actually put a lot of resources in kind into just information about how to sleep post an event like that and also really importantly making sure that acute trauma and acute sleep loss and acute just terrible stuff that's happened won't necessarily come in to be a chronic condition. So we've we've developed a brand new fact sheet around that about acute insomnia not becoming chronic insomnia and two other fact sheets around um, one for bushfire personnel and one for just, you know, sleeping when you're, you know, in a vigilant, uncertain space. So it actually lends itself very well to this particular episode, but that's it was done unrelated to this episode. They'd been promoted via social media and they look like really great resources. Yeah, yeah, really proud. You know, people just... We all pitched in and as always gives their time completely for free. We're all volunteers. It's really satisfying, really feel like we can contribute a little bit. So it's actually coincides with the, the World Sleep Day theme, which was set internationally, set in the USA. But, you know, better sleep, better life, better planet. That's why we're taking this particular angle this year. So the theme for this month's podcast is trauma and sleep. And as you heard in the introduction, it's a common thing and something both Maura and I see commonly in clinical practice. And trauma is actually surprisingly common in the general community. Uh, There's some nice research done in Australia showing prevalence rates of PTSD of around 5% of the population uh, in any given year and about 7% of the population across uh, people's lifetime. And for people who have had a very significant traumatic exposure, like rape, sexual assault, the rates of post-traumatic stress disorder are as high as 50%. So although we both see people in clinical practice, we're not experts in the field of trauma. So we've got Associate Professor Andrea Phelps, uh, who's going to talk to us about uh, trauma. And what's Andrea's background, Maura? Well, Andrea, as you said, is an associate professor. She's the deputy director of Phoenix Australia, a centre for post-traumatic mental health, which is located at the University of Melbourne. And she's got over 20 years of clinical experience in treating post-traumatic mental health problems. Andrea has also led a number of major Phoenix Australia projects, including the Australian Guidelines for the Treatment of Acute Stress Disorder and Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And she's also led some really innovative treatments for trauma populations, including imagery rehearsal therapy for post-traumatic nightmares. So it's an absolute pleasure that she agreed to talk to us today. So thank you so much for joining us, Andrea, for this episode. 
I'm wondering if you could tell us and our listeners a little bit about you and your career to date. Uh, So I'm a clinical psychologist, um, started my career in public mental health system and then started specialising in the treatment of trauma. And I've really been in that field for about the past 20 years, um, firstly in a clinical role and then um, since the early 2000s actually I've been at Phoenix Australia where we do a combination of research, training and also policy and practice advice to government and and any organisation really that has staff who are exposed to trauma in the course of their work. So that's obviously a a huge area and I'm wondering whether obviously sleep issues and and sleep disorders and sleep disturbance must come across that area quite a lot. Absolutely. Uh, When you think about uh, trauma very broadly, uh, sleep problems go hand in hand for, for many people and are often one of the early signs of uh, a trauma response that, that people start having trouble with their with their sleep. And those who do develop PTSD, two of the symptoms of PTSD are, are sleep-related symptoms. So it's very closely aligned with, with post-traumatic stress disorder. Could you tell us a bit more about post-traumatic stress disorder, especially for the listeners who might not know much about it? Post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD is a psychological disorder that can develop after exposure to a traumatic event. And and when we say traumatic event, it's generally defined as one that involves um, life threat or at least threat of serious injury. But it can range from a single discrete event, like a, a motor vehicle accident, to trauma that is prolonged or ongoing, so childhood sexual abuse, um, domestic violence, but also military uh, people working in emergency service organisations. So the range of trauma is, is incredibly broad. So if someone's had a traumatic exposure, what differentiates that person from someone who gets a label of PTSD? In the immediate aftermath of trauma, a lot of people will have some of the symptoms of PTSD. And perhaps I could just say briefly Mm -hmm. what the symptoms are. Um, There are four clusters or groups of symptoms. Uh, There are intrusions where people re-experience the actual trauma in one way or another, whether it's nightmares or or daytime memories and and images. There's increased arousal symptoms. So so people feel on edge, unable to relax, problems with concentration and attention. There's also changes, negative changes in thinking and feeling, so so cognitions and, and mood that are associated with it. And the fourth group of symptoms are avoidance symptoms, where people will go out of their way to avoid reminders of the, the trauma that they've experienced. So when you think about those four groups of symptoms, for, for a lot of people in the first couple of days after trauma, they can have all of those symptoms. And that that's what we consider a sort of normal reaction in a way but it's when those symptoms are severe enough to interfere with day-to-day life and or they continue beyond those first few days or a couple of weeks that's when we'd be looking at you know possibly having developed a, a psychological disorder such as PTSD. And you mentioned that the couple of the, well, at least two, that the sleep is affected in at least two of those um, clusters. Tell us a bit more about that. In the increased arousal sort of group of symptoms, difficulties falling and staying asleep is one of the, the symptoms there. And in the intrusion group of symptoms, um, post-traumatic 
nightmares or trauma-related dreams are one of the symptoms in that cluster. Which is very common, certainly in my practice. I'm sure, David, you see that a lot as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting too, Andrea, my reflection of what I might see in my practice is less of a, a binary thing of someone who, you know, not PTSD versus has PTSD. And quite a lot of the time, if they're presenting to me as a sleep physician, there might be a background of trauma, but not meeting that syndrome definition of full PTSD, but it's absolutely a piece of their sleep story or the sleep component and causing arousal. Yeah, absolutely. And so we do, increasingly, we're thinking about PTSD as a disorder that lies on a continuum. So people can have symptoms along a spectrum and at a certain point they meet a diagnostic sort of cut off for for making that diagnosis but that people can have some of those symptoms. I think the other thing that that we often see in people who don't have PTSD as such but they can still have ongoing sleep related problems that are linked back to their traumatic experience and part of that I think is that in order to sleep you need to let down your guard, relax, allow your mind and your body to to sleep. If someone's been through trauma, that can be quite difficult to do. If someone's had a trauma that has been particularly associated with the dark, for instance, or even with a sexual trauma that's involved sleep or being in bed, those being in the dark or being in bed can actually serve as trauma reminders and triggers which if we don't recognise that link, that's an important part of the treatment approach, really, to recognise those links and to help people to break the association between what they experienced at the time of trauma and those triggers that they're experiencing now. I'm just wondering then, along those lines, you know, I think we need to be extra sort of sensitive and considerate, I guess, um, as clinicians, taking into account when treating sleep problems in those who have experienced trauma. I guess some broad brush statements or, you know, guidance for people who are dealing with people's sleep, specifically people who have experienced trauma, and particularly in the in those settings, like in the a bedroom related or or at least dark related. What kind of extra consideration should we take into account? A lot of it is uh, like psychoeducation is an important sort of element of that to begin with. I think that what I find, and and you may or may not find the same thing, but what I find in working with people is that their sleep habits and patterns have developed over time and they may not necessarily think about how that's linked to a history of trauma. So in part of the assessment of the sleep problems, that inquiry about when did it begin, what are the factors that you think might have contributed to it, was there anything going on in your life at the time or shortly before you started having sleep problems, helping them to really join those dots. Not that that in itself is going to make the problem go away, but in order to know the approach as far as working on cognitions and patterns of behaviour, you need to understand what those causal links are. So it's just helping them to make those links and then using that as the basis of the approach that you take. So I just like to perhaps provide a further example of that, that if we, if we go with the standard uh, sort of sleep hygiene interventions of having a quiet room, a quiet dark space for people to sleep in, for some people that might actually be 
exactly the triggers that we want to avoid. Yep. So someone with PTSD might actually sleep much better if they have a nightlight on, for instance, yep. or if they have some white noise or low-level radio in the background so that they're not lying in bed hypervigilant, listening out for any creak in the house or, or any sort of low-level noise. So it, it is adapting the sort of principles that you'd normally apply to take into account the particular circumstances of the individual who's who's experienced trauma. And that's a really nice point. There's that contradiction sometimes in the instructions we give with sleep hygiene, which is, you know, don't bring anything else into the bedroom. And it almost creates then this empty space. And, mm. you know, the, the trauma can almost echo in that empty space. And so, it's you know, we want to try and fill some of that empty space with a distractor or something else. That's right. And and whatever people find to be effective during the daytime, you might be able to incorporate some sort of reminder of that. Because I, I guess coming back to when we're talking about the symptoms of PTSD, that if someone has intrusions, if they have a lot of negative thoughts and feelings, and during the daytime, they go about a very active process of keeping that at bay, once you settle down to sleep at night, your mind is free to travel back to those things that you're, you're trying to avoid. So combining things like mindfulness, meditation, things like that to help people to relax their mind in preparation for sleep can be really important. What about nightmares? I think that, I mean, you would have such specific expertise with this. I'd love to talk just a little bit about that and what your experience and your research has taught you or your, you know, your, your views on the best way to approach them. Because I've read mm. things like that they're thought to be adaptive and they can be helpful in some ways, like, like other intrusions can be, like in some making sense of what happened. But if there's particularly if there's been memory gaps or loss of consciousness or especially in those early days. But is that a complete myth? Or? I think that, and, and this is what I think and also on the basis of, of some research that I've done, yeah. that when we talk about nightmares in PTSD, we're not talking about a single phenomenon. Mm. I, I suspect that we're actually talking about a whole range of things and the approach probably needs to be different depending on the nature of the phenomena. So, so I did some, one, one of the problems in understanding post-traumatic nightmares has been that when people have a sleep lab, sleep study, people with PTSD tend to not have their nightmares while they're in the sleep lab possibly because they feel it's a bit safer than normal, that there's a sleep technician there, there are people around and they can actually relax more than they might normally do at home and they don't have the nightmare. That's, that's been a problem that's plagued the field for a long time. We did some research using ambulatory sleep monitoring. So we had people hooked up to the ambulatory PSG. We also had an event button that they had that they could press the event button when they experienced a nightmare, what they termed a nightmare, and that was linked to the sleep record. What we were able to determine was what stage of sleep they were in when they experienced the nightmare, and also whether there were other sleep events that were associated with the nightmare. And what we found was that people with PTSD had their nightmares in not only REM sleep, which is when we would normally expect dreaming to occur, but also in non-REM sleep. 
and that most of the time the dreams were associated with a breathing event such as a hypopnea and or with leg movements. It seemed as though for some people there was an underlying sort of sleep disturbance that might have led to their awakening and then they've pressed a button and reported that they've had a nightmare there's been no, I would have expected to find is that there would be a gradual increase in arousal and then the nightmare eventually wakes someone up. Whereas what we found is that the um, heart rate was stable until the point of awakening and then there was a sort of sudden surge associated with the awakening. So, So that led me to wonder if for some people at least what they're reporting as post traumatic nightmares are actually more like intrusions so that they get woken up with a high level of physiological arousal and that physiological arousal actually triggers the memory of trauma and so they're reporting a post-traumatic nightmare. For, For people in that sort of category I think what's critically important is that we do sleep studies and we we understand if there is an underlying sleep disorder so obstructive sleep apnea would be an obvious one to be screening for if people are only reporting nightmares because they're waking up with a hypopnea if we can treat the obstructive sleep apnea that might help them to sleep through and not have nightmares and we, we do know that the rate of um, obstructive sleep apnea in veterans in particular with PTSD is quite high and in people who don't necessarily have the usual risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea as well. I think that the other type of of nightmare is more like a normal dream. So, you know, more likely to occur in REM sleep, more likely to have, you know, an elaborate storyline that sort of unfolds over time. And for those sorts of dreams, I think that when people start having dreams in the first few days and weeks after trauma, that that I, I do believe that that can serve that adaptive emotional processing function. But when we see people who've got repetitive nightmares that have recurred, you know, for, for decades for some people, then there's nothing adaptive about that, I don't believe. What probably happens is that they wake up from those nightmares and so that prevents, that that awakening actually prevents the adaptive emotional processing uh, from occurring. And, and that's where this um, intervention that, that you will be familiar with um, called imagery rehearsal therapy, um, which I can talk a little bit more about, but I think that that's where that intervention is more likely to be helpful because what you're doing in, in IRT, as it's called, imagery rehearsal therapy, is that you're helping the person to change the script, change the the actual what happens in their nightmare in a way that increases their sense of mastery or control. And when you achieve that, or when they, they are able to achieve that, it means that they can actually sleep through the nightmare rather than being woken by it. And so it potentially allows for that emotional processing to occur. That's a slightly different interpretation 
of how it might work rather than, you know, re-scripting, you know, rather than that sort of more lucid dreaming type of way of conceptualising it as you, in a mantra-like way, you're practising it so you can alter where the dream goes. Yeah, I actually like your interpretation of how it might be working. It makes a little bit more sense. And it is speculation, to be honest. You know, it's it's not. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying the science here, <laughs> but um, I, I do think. I mean, in in the work, I've done a lot of work with um, imagery rehearsal therapy with with people, and I do feel as though the feedback I get is different from different people in terms of what they think is a helpful part of the process. For some people, I do think the lucid dreaming element is important that that you know when people start off the treatment they will often say this the idea that you can control what happens while you're dreaming is really counterintuitive people look at you as though you're a little crazy you know I can't control what happens in my dreams but when they realize that they can actually increase their awareness that they're dreaming while they're dreaming and not only that but that they can direct the direction that the dream takes, I think that can be quite a powerful intervention for some people, in part because it takes away the frightening element of a trauma dream that otherwise feels completely out of your control. So if you if you learn that you can control what happens in the dream, then it's no longer as frightening. And so I, I have people who say, you know, they've been avoidant of sleep because of fear of having the dream. And instead they go to bed saying, okay, I'm ready for it. Yeah. Bring it on. I almost, I want this nightmare to happen so that I can use my new, you know, set of tools to, to work on it. So, and, and I think that that's an important difference in the insomnia that we see in people with PTSD. Generally, when people have insomnia, they desperately want to sleep, but they can't. Often when people have PTSD, they actually don't want to sleep because they're afraid of of having a nightmare. So you've talked about nightmares and then we've talked about adapting some of the sleep hygiene instructions. What are some other clinical tips that you've learnt in your years of experience of managing sleep problems in people with trauma and PTSD? I think that if, if someone is presenting with nightmares and sleep problems as part of PTSD, my first port of call would be still to go to evidence-based treatments for PTSD. Because if we can effectively treat the PTSD, the sleep problems might resolve. So evidence-based treatment for, for PTSD is uh, trauma-focused cognitive behaviour therapy and EMDR or eye movement desensitisation and reprocessing. So that would always be my frontline approach. But we do know that not everyone benefits from those treatments. And even those who do are often left with residual sleep problems. So you are often in, in the situation where someone has had treatment for their PTSD, but they've still got the sleep problems, in which case the, the recommended treatment approaches are CBTI and imagery rehearsal therapy. I think that before embarking on that, I would, I would suggest and I will usually recommend people do have a sleep study just so that we can identify if there is any underlying sleep disturbance that's contributing, treating any other sleep condition and then using the CBTI and but adapting it a little bit as we spoke about before so that if there are particular trauma-related 
features that are going to get in the way of them being able to apply the interventions that we need to adapt it accordingly. There is a little bit of research going on at the moment into which one would you do first? You know, if someone has got the residual sleep problems after having treatment for PTSD, do you do the CBTI or do you do the IRT or do you do a combination of both? And I think it's really early days around knowing that at this point. My my inclination, I guess, where I've probably reflecting that I came from this from a nightmare perspective in the first place, my inclination is generally to address the nightmares up front and to provide information and advice about the CBT for insomnia, but the main focus of the work that I do tends to be on the nightmares more specifically. Where are the good resources, like evidence-based resources for general public or, or for clinicians, and where can people go for help for these sort of these evidence-based treatments? When, when people contact me, I, I would generally say uh, that if they see a clinical psychologist or a practitioner who's trained in cognitive behaviour therapy, that's the foundations that you'd be looking for in seeking help uh, with these sorts of problems. Not everyone will be trained in doing imagery rehearsal therapy, but it's not a complicated intervention. So I don't think it's something that people need, you know, detailed specific training in necessarily. If someone, if a practitioner has skills in providing CBT and they read up about imagery rehearsal therapy, they should be able to adapt it to the needs of their of their client. So I don't know of, uh, you know, particular people who I would refer someone to necessarily, but I think someone with a good solid background in, in cognitive behaviour therapy would be the person I'd recommend. The Phoenix, Phoenix Australia have, do you have a website with, you know, fact sheets or any information or referral services? We certainly have a, a lot of information about PTSD more generally. Mm. Um, we're in the process at the moment of developing uh, some additions to our training schedule. We, we provide a lot of training. We, we don't currently provide training in sleep interventions specifically, but that's something that we're, we're looking at developing. But certainly the Phoenix Australia website has got a lot of information about um, PTSD more generally, as well as the sorts of questions that you want to ask a practitioner who you're thinking about seeking help from and uh, the places to go to get information about what practitioners uh, are available depending on the area that you live in. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So that was a really great interview and thanks for tying that up. Moira, what were some of your take-home messages from Andrea's interview? Oh, well, first of all, just what a wealth of knowledge and, you know, really appreciate, could listen to her for a lot longer. Um, I think the that reminder to us that we the psychoeducation is so important that some people might not have made that link yet, that we have to actually yeah, educate around that, the conditioned response and that, that what, what they know is triggering, but sort of talk about, talk about the underlying stuff that's going on around around their sleep and their approach to the nighttime. I think that was a timely reminder or might be new for some people. I think that the the permission to adapt sleep hygiene or some of the CBTI components 
like, you know, having, we, we say have a dark room, have a quiet room, but sometimes, you know, a trauma expert is telling us that you can, and in fact should, be really sensitive to that and mindful of that and, and, and adapt that and not and not feel that it's not going to be the right thing to do. Because I know some of the purest sleep people with CBTI say, no, no, don't, you know, that stick to it really, really strictly. So that, that was an interesting point for me. So what's your clinical tip of the month? So one of the things in reflecting about this is thinking about the potential impact of trauma when managing people with sleep problems, not underplaying that there may be some impact of trauma in someone's sleep problems. Because I often find that if I take a sleep paradigm as the way of managing someone, right, can I treat this as an isolated sleep problem? And I'm two or three visits down the track and finding, you know what, we're just not getting where we need to go what else is going on? Well, it may actually be that there's prior trauma and a bit, as Andrea talked about, an association between a traumatic exposure and the dark or the bedroom environment. It may even be that we haven't talked about it in Andrea's interview, but complex early life traumas led to some personality change or personality traits or even a personality disorder that might be impacting on that ability to sit with distress and switch off and and self-soothe. So really explore the, has someone had prior traumatic exposure and think about may that be impacting on their sleep presentation. So Moira, what's your pick of the month? Well, my pick of the month for the first time ever is a song. It's actually a song. I don't think we've ever had it. We've had lots of other things that as our pick of the month. It's a song by Australian singer-songwriter legend Paul Kelly called Sleep, Australia Sleep. It's just been released sort of really recently, earlier, early 2020. I think, again, particularly um, relating to post-bushfire, because I, when I heard the song, and we'll, we can put a little bit on it at the end of the podcast, and I'll certainly put a link to it on Spotify. When I first heard the song, I thought, how fantastic. You know, sleep Australia, sleep. It's sort of something, a, a theme that we, we're, especially from the Sleep Health Foundation's point of view, we're wanting to promote it, so it could be, might have found our anthem. But on, but upon very quickly realised that the lyrics aren't indeed aren't really about sleep per se. It's actually, I'd say, um, I mean, I haven't spoken to Paul Kelly, but I'd imagine he's written it in response to what he would perceive as inaction on climate change. Sleep, Australia, sleep. The night is on the creek. Shut out the noise all around. What about your pick of the month? I wanted to highlight an article, so an Australian article, um, the senior author's Leon Lack from Adelaide, and it was a systematic review of the accuracy of sleep wearable devices for estimating sleep onset. So for a number of years, there's been increasing access accessibility in the community and people are increasingly using consumer-based devices to try to pick sleep or measure sleep. And so this was a review of the evidence in that area to look at, are they actually accurate? Do they measure sleep in a reasonable way? And the very simplistic answer is, yeah, they seem to. Not as bad as what, as a field, we may have perceived that that, that they may be. But it's only about estimating sleep onset. Is there any other data that's the focus of that systematic review? No. So that was particularly about sleep onset. And that largely because of Leon's interest in intensive sleep retraining, mm. so that research they did where people are sleep deprived for a period of time and then almost uncontrollably fall asleep over multiple occasions as a way of trying to um, extinguish some of that classically conditioned psychophysiological arousal response yep. about getting to sleep. Uh, and so to be able to do that, need a, 
um, accurate way of being being able to measure sleep onset. So he's got a particular interest in that particular uh, question. So what's coming up in future episodes? So I'm still working on who to talk to about using sleep medications during pregnancy. Seems like it's not as simple as what I thought. I've asked a couple of a couple of uh, different specialties, and they all go, "Well, that's not quite our specialty." But it turns out it's not really oh, anyone's specialty. So, bit, so I'm still yeah. still working on that. Mm-hmm. But it is a bit of a gap because I see a lot of women who are considering pregnancy and maybe on uh, have got sleepiness syndromes and on wake promoting medications and want to know about use of medications. And it comes up in insomnia as well. Mm. You know, we each manage people with insomnia and coexisting anxiety and depression, mm. what to do with those medications across uh, pregnancy. Yeah, and also sleep and pain. Yeah, so there's a few other topics. So definitely sleep and pain still on the radar. And I've had someone else reach out uh, wanting some help about parasomnias. And whilst there is some information and we've done a few things for the media and TV on parasomnias, it is something we haven't talked about on the podcast. So we'll try and find someone to talk about parasomnias. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you've got any suggestions for other topics you'd like us to talk about, email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au and tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast so that they can listen in and get a better understanding about sleep. All right. Well, we'll talk to you next month. Bye for now. Thanks a lot. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 